0: And we're going to look at Isaiah chapter forty. Isaiah forty, starting in verse twelve. We've been looking at uh, at Isaiah forty the last couple of weeks. Uh, verses one through eleven are a prologue to the last section of Isaiah forty. Verses forty through sixty-six. And a lot of the themes that are included in all those chapters are included in the first 11 verses. And verse 12 is kind of the beginning of the, of the, the body of this last section of Isaiah. And uh, it's a great section of Scripture and speaks very clearly to uh, our situation today. So let us give our attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it, casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts it for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, today is Father's Day, and I've mentioned before that I enjoy doing uh, genealogical research on my uh, fathers. And right before the Civil War, I've come to find out, my four times great grandfather uh, passed away. He died, and there was a dispute. They couldn't find the will. So, there was five sisters and one brother the The brother was my three times great grandfather. And so he took charge of the of the will and and uh, submitted a new updated will. and of course, that led to a dispute. And this dispute uh, went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. That's how bad it was. It seems that uh, my three times great grandfather was going to pay his shares out to his sisters uh, using confederate money. The only problem was that it was after the Civil War and the confederate money wasn't any good anymore. So maybe the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. I hope not. Well, that dispute, of course, went all the way to the top pretty much. And I'm sure that everyone here has been in a dispute with someone else in your lives, but hopefully and maybe... I'm sure none of you have probably taken it to the Supreme Court. Uh, But we all have been in disagreements and arguments uh, with others from time to time. Now, the passage before us today is an argument. It's what's called a disputation. Now, a disputation is an, an argument put forward to counter a position someone has adopted. God, through Isaiah, is having a dispute with his people. Now, sometimes my children will begin telling me something. Uh, you know, they, It's like they jump right into the middle of a thought. I think they were on their phone texting, and they think that I know what they're, they've been thinking about and texting to their friends or whatever they do. And, uh, and then they'll start talking to me, and, and, I, and I'll say, I, I have no clue what you're talking about. I don't know where this is coming from or what you're saying. But then they'll give me the context and I'll say, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. I understand perfectly well. Uh, you did need to fill in a few details here. Well, from verses 12 to 26 in Isaiah 40, God is speaking about himself to his people. And as you read this, as we read it just a moment ago, it, it, it's, uh, it really is a theology lesson. God is rehearsing to the people all about who he is and his character and his, his power and his might and his justice and his understanding and wisdom. And one must ask, why is God giving his people this theology lesson? It's not until you get down to verse 27 that you understand why God is saying what he is saying in verses 12 through 26. Then you get the context. Because in verse 27... You look there; it says this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? The tenses used in the original language in this verse uh, are, are statements to tell us that these are statements that the people of God were continually saying; they were continually thinking this that. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. It became the way that they believed, they thought. And this brings me to my first point. Lies we are tempted to believe, because these are lies that the people of God had begun to believe about God. What do they mean when they kept on saying, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Two phrases there. The first phrase is pretty easy to understand. My way is hidden from the Lord. For some reason, they, they thought that God could not or would not see what, is, what was happening to them. They were in dirt, uh, difficult circumstances and they thought that God must be blinded to what they were going through. If God could just see what was happening, surely, surely he would do something about it. And since he's not doing anything about it, possibly he can't see what's going on here. Now the second phrase is not so straightforward. My right is disregarded by my God. In the original language, the phrase is, my God passes over judgment. Now the word judgment, of course, is a legal term. Uh, the people are saying they have a case. They they have a, a legal case, a legal right. They want justice. They want things to be put right, but, but God is passing over their case. He's disregarding their case and them in the process. And they are, have been praying to God for help to put things right, but He keeps dismissing the case. You know how difficult it would be to have a a righteous cause, a righteous case, and you've been wronged. And you keep going to the judge and he keeps throwing your case out for no good reason. That's the way the people were feeling. God did not know about their condition or did not care about their condition and he wasn't willing to do anything about their condition. They felt that God had forsaken them, that he had abandoned them. And that's what they were saying and thinking. And as a result, they were discouraged, despondent, depressed, weary, and ready to give up. Give up on God. Why do our prayers go unanswered? We live with difficult circumstances, some more than others, of course. We, We have difficult people in our lives that cause us problems. We experience grief and pain. We have anxiety over the future and our circumstances. And we pray and we pray and we pray. Yet God does not seem to hear or care. Why won't he listen? Why won't he act? It leads us to wonder if he cares. Or is he just powerless to do anything? When we have difficulty in life and get discouraged, we often begin to question God in our minds like the people of God in Isaiah's day. These negative thoughts and expressions that the people of God were having in, uh, in Isaiah's day, that's what prompted God to say the things that he's saying in verses 12 through 26. It's very interesting, uh, something that we need to take note of, that when God sees his people thinking God can't see, God doesn't care, he turns to a theology lesson. There are a lot of people today who think that theology uh, is not necessary even for the Christian. And that's, that's for preachers and seminary lecturers, uh, for professors at the, those colleges. It's just not for normal, everyday people to delve into the depths of theology but God's answer here is to do that very thing, to do theology. Theology proper. You know, theology has lots of branches. You know, you've got soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Ecclesiology is the study of church. Eschatology is the study of the last things. But what we're doing here is what they call theology proper. We're studying theology, the study of God, God's nature. God gives us a theology proper lesson here in verses 12 through 26. And it just tells us that God wants us to study his word and grow in our knowledge of him. And the more we know and understand, it, understand about him, the stronger we will be in the midst of our difficult circumstances. So don't blow off theology and a right understanding of God. The Bible's full of it, obviously. Well, God answers these people with a barrage of theology. And I want us to just walk through verses 12 through 26 together, and just let these truths wash over your soul, your discouraged soul, your soul that wonders, why can, is God not answering my prayers? Why does he seem indifferent to my circumstances? And that brings me to the second point, the truths we need to remember. Let's begin in verse 12 and break these verses down. It talks about God measuring the waters in the hollow of his hand and marking off the heavens with a span. In that phrase, you get the the distinction between earth and heaven. So there's the sense of totality here. God is the creator of it all. He holds the ocean in the palm of his hand. You know, you might go out to the beach if you're not scared of the flesh-eating bacteria and stick your hands in the water uh, just out the door here. And, and, you know, often you'll cup your hands and, you know, you, you wouldn't drink that water for sure. But, you know, you can get a little water in the palm of your hand. It'll stay there and you can hold it. But God is saying that he holds all the waters, all the oceans in the palm of his hand. And the heavens he's marked off with a span. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. So you see the same kind of totality here. You've got the dust of the earth and then you've got the mountains of the earth. Something very small, is something very large compared to one another. Uh, the dust, he's enclosed it in a measure. and the mountains, he's weighed out. and the hills, he's weighed them out in the scales and in a balance. God's creative work and his sustaining of creation is complete and total. And, it, and it's a display of his power. John Piper has in a, in a book this little paragraph, and I, I'll read it to you. I, I, I don't understand it and it's mind-blowing, so I'm going to blow your minds with it as well. Scientists know that light travels at the speed of 5.87 trillion miles a year, that's a light year. They also know that the galaxy in which our solar system is a part is about 100,000 light years in diameter. So our galaxy is 587,000 trillion miles. That's big. It is one of about a million such galaxies in the universe, a million galaxies that size or similar in the universe. In our galaxy alone, there are about 100 billion stars and the sun is just one of them, which is a modest star that burns at about 6,000 degrees centigrade. That's hot, if you didn't know that. And it travels in an orbit of about 155 miles per second. That's really fast. Which, which means it will take 200 million years just to complete a revolution around our galaxy. That, that is big. The, the numbers are so astounding, you, you can't even get your head around it. We can't even fathom it. But the, the verse here tells us that, like a builder, God measured all this off with a ruler. And he put everything in its place. That's amazing that God did that. What power at his disposal. Well, verse 13. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Uh, in other words, uh, who, who has uh, controlled it? Who has measured it out? You know, who is in charge of it? The Spirit of the Lord, his spirit. Or what man shows him his counsel? You know, what, what man tells God what to do? whom did he consult and who made him understand you know who who does god go to for advice well there's you can't go any higher than god he has all resources of wisdom and knowledge Uh, he defines what wisdom and knowledge are who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding of course the answer to all these is no one no man justice begins and ends with him no one taught him anything he knows everything and he knows everything about you every single thing he knows it verse 15 behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales behold he takes up the coastlands like fine dust so uh if we think about nations, they're the greatest human entities on the planet, the nations. Some are more powerful than others. You know, the British Empire at one point, the sun never set on the British Empire. It was very powerful and influential. Uh, but that's just uh, a drop in the bucket to God. America, the most powerful nation on the earth. And it tells us here that it's like dust on the scales. Now, I have a pair of scales in my bathroom, and I weigh myself just about every day because I have fooled myself thinking that I'm trying to lose weight, but it's not going anywhere. But I notice sometimes that there's dust on the scales. Now, I don't reach down and make sure it's wiped off. Why not? I mean, the dust could make me weigh more, couldn't it? No, the dust is, is, is of no account. The dust doesn't make a difference. I still weigh as much as I did yesterday, and it's the, you can't blame it on the dust. The nations are like dust on the scales, he says. They don't, they don't have any weight whatsoever compared to God. He's much greater, bigger, and more powerful than they ever thought about being. Verse 16, he talks about uh, Lebanon. Lebanon was known for its great forests. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. The cedars of Lebanon you read about in the Bible, they were famed and, and used actually for the temple. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. So you've got these nations. Take Lebanon, for example, a powerful nation. Uh, God is not influenced by these nations. They can bring their best to bear uh, and, and to try to influence God, but He's not influenced by them. They could take all their trees and make burnt offerings. They could take all the beasts that they have in their 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 uh, their country, and, and it and it does not have an influence upon God. That They influence the world, yes. We think about the nations, and we're worried about the nations and the paths that some of the nations are on. It's a great concern, politics, uh, that we talk about a lot. But to God, they're insignificant because he's sovereign. He is the sovereign God. He is the king over all kings. And as he goes on to say, he blows on these rulers and leaders of these countries and they, they disappear. You, you know, I love the fight scenes in movies where the guy punches the big old guy in the face and the big guy's still standing there and then the, the hero just blows on him, and they fall over. Uh, that's so cool. Well, God blows on the nations and they disappear. The leaders of the nations, they, they are insignificant compared to him. Now, when you get to verse 18, it really just repeats the same arguments over again. It goes back to creation goes back to his wisdom, goes back to his sovereignty over the nations, talks about how he is over all of this thing. He's more powerful than all, and he has an infinite amount of knowledge and wisdom. Now, do you get the point that God is making here? We can get caught up in this theology lesson of of who God is and and all the details that he gives about himself, but he's addressing the, the question that the people of God were having. Does God hear? Is God disregarding my case? To say that God cannot see or understand is to question his ability. Is God powerful enough? Is he big enough to deal with your problem? Is he powerful enough to help you? Of course he is. That's the, that's the question. You know, he's given us these questions of theology. Uh, who is god like i mean he knows everything he's got all power at his disposal he sees everything he he knows the universe he keeps the stars in their place so yes he knows all about you and to say that god disregards your case is to question his wisdom and of course he's the one that invented wisdom he is wisdom he knows what he's doing We may not understand his reasons, and we may not be privy to his purposes, but we should never question that he knows what he's doing in our lives. We must trust his wisdom and his hidden purposes, and we must believe the truth that God is absolutely just, and he will always put everything right. Jesus told his disciples the very same thing. Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God knows the number of hairs on your head. For some people, that's a bigger number than others and takes more knowledge. But uh, but God knows all about you. The point is, God knows all You intimately. He knows what's going on in your life. And I guess the crux of the matter really is, you know, we all know that God is big and powerful. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be mad at God. Uh, We're mad because we know that he can do something about it. And we wonder, you know, why is he not being fair? But we know he's a fair God and he's just and we, we believe he's loving Really, the crux of the matter is, do I believe that God values me, like Jesus is talking about? Do I believe that he loves me, that he's going to use his power and that wisdom for me? Sure, he's powerful, he's wise beyond imagination, but is he for me? Sometimes it seems like he's against me when he ignores my case. But I'm going to take you back to Romans 8. In the verse we all love to quote, but sometimes find it hard to believe, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good. God is wise. He has a plan. He has us right where he wants us. That's what that says. Even in spite of difficult circumstances, difficult people, grief and pain, God has us, and he's using those things for our good. And he goes on, and I think, how do we know that? How do we know that? Paul goes on in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect... It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, any of these things that are likely to make us think that God's not seeing us and God doesn't care? Does that separate us from the love of God? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, God is big enough. He's powerful enough. He's wise enough. He sees He knows what we're going through, and he has a purpose behind it. He's not disregarding our case. He's on the case. He's working to make us into the image of Christ. That's what he's doing. Sometimes it feels like just the opposite, but that's what he's doing, and he has not stopped loving us. How do we know that? Because he went to all the trouble to come to earth and die on the cross in our place. If he's gone to that such great length on our behalf, How can we say that he doesn't care or that he doesn't see? Yes, he loves us. And with that in mind, that brings us to the third point. In the midst of our difficulty and the temptation to become discouraged and despondent with God, what should we do? Verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, The creator of the ends of the earth, and I think this is the most important phrase, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He does not faint. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get tired of you. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't get weary of you if you're his child. His understanding is unsearchable. He he knows what he's doing with you. He gives power to the faint, it says. And you think, when is he going to give power to the faint? And to him who has no might, he increases strength. When is he going to increase my strength? Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And here's the kicker. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait for the Lord. Wait for his purposes to ripen. Wait for his will to, to be carried out. And in the meantime, trust him. That's what wait means. The word wait means to, to look for expectantly, to hope in. It, it implies patience. It implies saying, okay, God's got this thing. I don't know what he's doing. And, you know, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction. But I know that he's driving the car and he's going to get me to the right destination. Because he's promised to do so and he's gone to great lengths to get me in the car by dying for my sins. Wait for the Lord. Trust him. Don't fret. Trust. Yeah, we're going to have to battle with the world, the flesh, the devil, our own temptations, all these things that come at us. But wait for the Lord. Trust in him. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Continue to pray to him. He hears you. In fact, Christ is interceding for you, as Paul told us in Romans 8. Christ is interceding at the right hand of the Father for you if you're his child. And I want to just conclude with Hebrews 13. Uh, When I was a child, I got a pencil at uh, Sunday school and it had this verse on it, and I've loved this verse ever since. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what was on the pencil, but to back up and read the whole verse. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. You know, what he's saying, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, is that we are tempted sometimes to put uh, our uh, trust in worldly possessions, money. Money. Uh, we are looking for security in our bank accounts. That's the one example that he uses, but we could branch that out. We look at all kinds of places to give us security, uh, to give us uh, a life that we think is worth living. But he's saying, look, be content that you are the Lord's. He's not forsaken you. You may be poor but he has not forsaken you. You may be going through a difficult time, but he has not forsaken you. You may have a difficult person in your life that's causing you all kinds of grief. He has not forsaken you. You may have lost a loved one. He has not forsaken you. You may have gone through all manner of health problems. He has not forsaken you. The Lord is your helper. Do not fear. Do not fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of encouragement to us. Forgive us for how we have doubted you in the past. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be uh, those who wait. We live in a, in a world that wants it now. We, we want instant gratification. And so it's very difficult for us to, to experience delays in your answers. But Lord, we pray that we would set our hope on what's to come. Because there's something so great that you have for your people, for your children. Something that's coming that that we can't even imagine what it's like. So Lord, we pray that in the meantime, on this journey that we take, that you would get us to that destination and help us to trust you as we travel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.